right, now if you would please read the Bible with me, I will read out loud as you follow along in Genesis 20, it's page 18 in your pew Bible. Genesis 20. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of the Lord is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. Thank you for your word. Let us learn from it and go in your grace from this place, in Jesus' name, amen. We learn of God's grace, God's love for undeserving sinners like us. Let's remember the definition of grace. We don't deserve it. And certainly, Abraham didn't deserve it in this chapter. 
But we learn of his grace through our repeated errors as well as through the spiritual victories God brings into our lives. This chapter, chapter 20, is part of Abraham's life also. Along with his faith-filled encounter with the Lord when, when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and came to Canaan. Along with that act of faith where he went out not knowing where he was going. That's Hebrews 11.8. It actually says that in the Bible. He didn't know where he was going. He just was led of the Lord. And it's part of this story of Abraham's life, just like in chapter 15, when it says he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then we will see a great act of faith in chapter 22 where he is the exemplar of faith, willing to sacrifice his son. But this is part of his life too. And if you're honest, you've had some times in your life where your faith faltered. And we're here to encourage you today to not give up, but to continue seeking God even after those moments of faltering. What you read here is no way to excuse our sin. Never do we look at an episode like this and say, well, Abraham did it, I guess I can do it too. No, it is meant as a warning to us. And when we consider the harm which Abraham did to his wife in chapter 20, we consider that Abraham warts and all is sometimes a great example for us when he stepped out from Ur. And he's sometimes a terrible example for us. We have to live in a posture of humility, remembering that we need warnings from the Old Testament and remembering that we're always going to need grace in order to finish the race. You need grace to finish the race. If we're to be saved at the end, we will be saved as sinners on a pathway of increasing holiness. But the path is not just up and up and up. It has valleys and uphill climbs. I don't often remember sitting on top of a mountain. I just remember the uphill climb and the valleys. That's what I remember. Not so much victory in my life, but I do know that God's grace will carry you through. So let's consider the text today, verses 1 to 7 threat to the seed of the woman. Verses 8 through 13, trepidation and patterns of sin flow from a faith that falters. And verses 14 to 18, thrust into service by God's grace. So verses 1 to 7, threat to the line of the seed of the woman. There's a pattern or a rut that we can get into that Abraham had already been down this road. We saw in chapter 12 that they went down to Egypt because of a famine, and it's recorded that Pharaoh claimed the house, claimed Sarah out of the household of Abraham. And there was all kinds of boils that broke out on his skin and the skin of his household. And it came to his attention that this was not a situation he should stay in. And so he was delivered from sinning with Sarah before they had union and they went back to Canaan. Now you think you go through that kind of experience, you think you're going to le learn a lesson. 
but he falls into exactly the same error here. And I want you to know that this was a grave sin. It's not just a matter of what he told his wife to say. It's a matter of exposing your wife to the molestation by a king. It, it was horrible wife abuse. And so husbands, we are meant to lead our home. We're meant to protect our home. Lots of men in conservative Presbyterian church, churches want the privilege of leading their home and telling their wives what to do. But it's not the same number of men who do that as make the costly choices always to protect their wives, provide for them, cherish them, love them, and sacrifice their own safety so that their wives can be safe. He did not protect his wife, and he asked her to deceive. It says in verse 13 of chapter 21, God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. He's involving her in his deception. Here's a pattern. Here's a rut. And it went into practice because it says in chapter 20, verse 5, that she even said, he is my brother. So she was brought into this cycle of deception. To say that she is my sister was a half-truth. It's not the whole truth. When we're in a court of law, we are given a, an oath. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's true that she was his sister, but he was also her husband. The intention of a statement, what's behind it, gives the overall effect of it. If you say, well, she's my sister, you're intending to hide the fact that you are her husband. You know, people would raise their eyes even in those days if they were just living together. And so to explain the fact that this beautiful woman, and it's obvious she was beautiful, at the age of 90, she was still attracting the looks of a king. And people lived longer in those days. She was a middle-aged very beautiful woman. And to explain the fact that I am living in the same house with this woman, and oh, by the way, I don't have any children. She's been very well preserved, no agonies of childbirth, probably had all the characteristics that a man would look for. To explain it, he says, she's my sister. And so a sister and a brother could live together. But he ignored the and neglected to tell that he was her husband. This is truth-telling with the intention to deceive. And it comes from self-serving, save-my-own-skin motivations on the part of Abraham. Abraham knew the consequences. He had seen the consequences in Egypt. And yet he allowed it to happen. He might think of his failure there in chapter 12. You might think of his failure in chapter 16 when he went into the handmaiden of his uh, wife's servant, Hagar, and got her pregnant. And you might look at this chapter, okay, three strikes, you're out. But that's not the way God works. God doesn't like have a set amount of mistakes. God is looking, will we come back to him? And we see at the end of the chapter, 
that Abraham came back to God. You see, he prayed for Abimelech. That implies that he still had a relationship. He was still a trusting man of God. And so I encourage you today, if you're ever in that place where you thought you've made one too many mistakes, run back to God. I tell all the young people I work with, run to God. You're going to make mistakes in college. Run to God. He will always hear your prayer. Come to God, my dear brothers and sisters. You see, the Lord establishes that here is a man who could pray for a pagan, and his prayer was answered. And it's on the basis, if you turn with me now, turn over to Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Why could Abraham be this kind of prayer warrior? It's because he was a saved man. It's because the blood covered his sin. Look at Romans 3, verse 25. It's speaking of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. You see, God had looked over all the sins in the Old Testament because he knew his son was coming. He knew that Jesus was going to pay for those sins. And that's what covered Abraham's uh, sins. And that's what makes the carelessness of Abraham at this point so offensive. Because it's precisely at the moment when the seed of the woman was about to go on another generation. It was precisely when Sarah had been promised a son. It says in Genesis 18, 14, at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. And in Genesis 17 and 21, we read, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. It's right when that's about to happen that all kinds of confusion could be introduced into Abraham and Sarah's relationship. As Derek Kidner remarks, the timing of Abraham saying that Sarah was his sister could not be worse. The episode is one of suspense. On the brink of Isaac's birth story, here is the very promise put in jeopardy. Traded away for personal safety. Unquote. The Lord had promised that a descendant of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And here it is about to come to pass. One year from that time that the promise was made in Genesis 17. But you know the confusion. It's in a court of law often. There's paternity cases. A woman has relations with more than one man during the nine months previous to the birth of a baby. And no father wants to claim paternity. Or maybe both want to claim paternity. And it's got to be sorted out. There's no DNA test back in those days. No way of sorting out whose baby this is. It would have been horrific if Abimelech had slept with Sarah. And so we see that God did something in this situation to sort it out. Look at chapter 20 and look at verse 6. 
God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God was sovereign. God showed his grace to protect the line. This chapter begins terribly, but it ends wonderfully by God's grace. How is it going for you? Do you have any ruts from which you need to escape? Now, ruts are great if they're good ruts. If you're out in the woods and you're on a trail and you see a rut around the corner, I see it all the time over there on, uh, by the reservoir. You got bicycles who are going around the corner and they use the rut to stay on the trail so they don't go flying off into a tree. Some of the ruts we have in our life are good. The rut, the habit, may I put it more nicely, of reading the Bible every day. The habit of praying every day. The habit of worshiping with God's people every week. Unless providentially hindered by sickness or being out of town. And even then, I try to get to church when I'm out of town. I'll even go to a church that isn't like what I believe totally. It's more important to go and sing the good hymns. They mostly have good hymns, most of those churches. Go to church, even on vacation. Pray. Read the word. Have Christian fellowship. Those are good habits. When you use those habits, you run into John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Jesus is praying to the Father. Your word is truth. When you hear the word, when you read the word, you are sanctified. You feel the cleansing. Don't just pray. Read the word and pray. Don't just read the Bible. Read the word and pray. These are good ruts, but we got the bad ruts too. And we see the pattern on faithfulness, and it can affect future generations. Look at Genesis 26, 7. Turn over there with me, just a couple pages. Genesis 26 and verse 7. See what it says about Isaac. He does the same stuff as his father. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. That's what you call generational sin. That's called just learning bad stuff from your father. And he heard about it. Isaac obviously didn't see it happen. He wasn't born yet, but he probably heard about it. And he pulled off the same stuff. we got to break those cords of generational sin. We need to repent of our sin. And so we learn in verses 1 to 13 that God, Abraham, allowed a foothold for the threat to the line of the seed of the woman come into his life through a pattern of sin. If the promise is going to be fulfilled, it's going to be by God's grace. And we need to humble ourselves and we need to repent. When we're shown a lesson in chapter 12, we should learn it so it doesn't repeat in chapter 20. We also learn that even a man, a pagan, who has a heart of integrity, what I mean by that, not that he is a totally righteous man. When it says he is righteous, it's not that he's justified in the sight of God, but according to his own standards, he had integrity. And we can think we're on the right track, but we can still fall. So let us not be led astray by others. 
who are teaching us to do wrong things. And finally, we see in verses 6 through 7 in this first point, a path to restorations. And the restoration is to see that our offense is not just against our neighbor, it's against God. Look at the end of verse 6. I also withheld you from sinning against me. It's against you. You only have I sinned. And so we do sin against our brothers and sisters. Abraham did a horrible thing to his wife here, and yet God knew that the sin was against him ultimately because he was the lawgiver. In Israel, adultery not only hurt people, but it defiled God. And so in the ancient Near East, adultery was mostly a matter between a husband and the perpetrator. Dale Ralph Davis says that adultery was a private wrong committed against the husband, and so the husband took care of it. Maybe he killed the adulterer, maybe he did something else. But man, don't do that again. But in Israel, and for us, it's offense against God. Turn with me, please, over to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, where we read Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Marriage, 13.4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It is wrong to have sex before marriage, and it is wrong to have sex while you're married to a person who is not your spouse. It's a grave offense against our holy God, and God will judge it. It's a sin against God to depart from our marriage commitments because he set up marriage. He brought Adam to Eve in the garden. He said, Jesus said, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, one of the ways people try to separate a husband and a wife is by playing around on the side. This is a warning and I know we're a good, conservative, Presbyterian church. I get that. But I also know pastors in good, conservative, Presbyterian churches who have committed adultery. And I know of members who have committed adultery. We need the warning, church. Don't give yourself over to looking at women if you're a man. Don't give yourself over to looking at men if you're a wife. So how did it happen that Abraham was willing to have his wife called his sister and so expose her to this danger? Well, verses 8 through 13 says, trepidation and patterns of sin flow from a faith that falters. If you don't trust God enough to protect you when you move to a new part of the country, who's down there in the south between Kadesh and Shur and Stade and Gerar, you're not trusting God. He is powerful. He is sovereign. And if you are meant to die, you will go to be with him right away. You will be in the bosom of Abraham as they understood it. You will be in the presence of Christ now. If you trust God, you will not give yourself over to the fearfulness that leads you to do wrong things. And to pick up what those wrong things are, we look at Ahimelech's questions. He was a very perceptive man as a pagan. And we read in verse 9, the first question, and Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? 
basically that's he's saying, why are you thinking only of yourself? You're trying to protect yourself? What have you done to us? The second question in verse 9, if you read it there, how have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? And it's, did I deserve to have you deceive me? And, and he makes a declaration here. You've done deeds to me that ought not to be done. This is not hospitable. I invite you to be in my territory and you do this to me? Did I deserve to have you deceive me? And the third question is in verse 10. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? So what are the facts? What's the big picture? What did you have in view? What, what was your game plan here? Well, look at those questions in sequence. First, what have you done to us? Why did you think only of yourself? And basically, in verse 12, Abraham said, I didn't do anything to you. She truly is my sister. Yeah, I know she's my wife, but she's my sister. I didn't do anything to you. So, so don't claim I've done something to you. Well, that's the height of self-centeredness. He still hasn't gotten the message, okay, guys? He, he is not repenting yet, okay? And we see the second problem revealed. Did I deserve to have you deceive me? And he says in verse 13, well, no, this was just my modus operandi. This is what I did everywhere. Okay, wherever I went, I had her tell the story that he is my brother. You see verse 13, he's saying, wherever I go. So it's nothing personal with you. It's not like you deserved it or not. It's just the way I operate. Well, that is the height of arrogance. This is not a good day for Abraham, folks. He is, he's basically blaming, you know, God. Look at look what he said. He's, he's blaming God. He says at the beginning, God caused me to wander from my father's house. And so I said to her, will you give this line? He's my brother. He's blaming God. Oh, I'm a wanderer now. I have to protect myself. So I made this expediency, sort of like Adam and Eve in the garden. When... Uh, Adam is confronted by God. He says, oh, the woman you gave me, she tempted me to eat. This is a fear, a fear of being trapped by a hostile environment. This is a blaming of God mentality. And the third question, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? In other words, what are the facts in general? And he gives his answer, verse 11, he gives it here, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. That's the big picture. That's the facts. I didn't want to die. But basically, he's complaining about those people not having a fear of God. I tell you, Abimelech showed a lot of fear when God showed up and talked to him. Do you see that there? He, he listened, didn't he? So who's the one that doesn't have fear? Abraham, at this point, does not have a fear of God that removes the fear of man. He has an insufficient awe and fear and faith in God that removes the fear of man. I ask you today, 
Don't blame God for calling you and sending you on a pilgrimage of faith. We have a bit of wandering going in our life sometimes. We have different things happen, don't we? And that's pilgrimage. And that's what we can't blame God for taking us on. It's going to be a path of faith. And even when we're on that path of faith, we don't get to blame God and then choose to fix the situation with our expediencies of deception. We need to think of others. We need to think of our close family members and the people in our community around us who see us. We need to be those who are saying the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And as we turn away from sin and deny our sin and our deceit, we are thrust into God's service by God's grace. Verses 14 to 18. Now, frankly, I don't see any specific moment in this text where Abraham repents, except perhaps just the very act of praying. Sometimes that is the repentance. Sometimes that is the step toward God. And although he's asked to pray for Abimelech, he might say to himself, oh, I can't do that. I really blew it today. Man, I endangered my wife. How can I talk to God? But God is calling us to pray, not on the basis of our goodness, but his grace. It's not our goodness, it's his grace. And God has called him a prophet earlier in the chapter. He is a prophet, he says. In, in verse number uh, five, I believe it is. And he's, no, verse seven. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you. This is God's plan. And if God has a plan, he is going to work out his plan by the instruments that he has at hand. Okay? You know, God could have just sort of healed Abimelech right away all by himself from heaven. Right? Couldn't he have done that? Couldn't he have said, okay, I'm going to stop the barrenness in your family. There was barrenness that we read about in chapter 20 and verse 18. And I'm not going to kill you. You're good. You get to live your life out in your land. No guarantees about eternity, but you're still okay here on earth. He could have done it that way. But guess what? He wants to work through his people. God is pleased to shape history through the prayers of his saints. God is pleased to use your prayers on behalf of the ungodly to win the godly, ungodly to himself and to make you more godly. Yeah, you have an important job to do, church. We have an important community to reach here. It's just as important as Florida, okay? It's just as important as Florida. There's a lot more Christians down there. You've got a lot of responsibility on your plate. And I'll don't say that to guilt you. I'm just saying, this is a little church in a big state. We need Jesus to go out here. We need you praying. We need you witnessing. We need you loving people. And you're doing that already. I'm just here to encourage you. And I'm saying this in conclusion to say, you don't have to be perfect to do it. You don't have to be the ones who have never sinned. You might have fallen into this kind of repetitive sin in some area of your life. Now deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. 
start fearing God rather than man. Oswald Chambers was a great chaplain who served in World War II through the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, when it was a great evangelical organization. And he was in the trenches in World War I. He, he, he really was in danger many times. And he said this, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you're, you fear everything else. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Let's turn away from fear. Let's have a strong faith and a strong God. Turn away from besetting sins and ruts which tend to ruin us. Turn away from self-centeredness, self-gratification, lust, trust, and fear God, fearing no man. Second, let us trust God always to work out challenging provinces, providences to glory, to his glory. He will bring his glory to pass. He stopped Abimelech from touching Sarah. There was no way that that baby had any question about who its father was. The father was Abraham, the mother was Sarah, and that Isaac was a forebear of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who died for us to cover our sins and to cover Abraham's sins. And third, trust the Lord that his calling in your life to serve him will be fulfilled. If you are a single Christian serving Christ in his church, if you are a married husband serving Christ in his church and in your family, if you are a married wife serving Christ in his church and in your family, if you're a teenager, if you're a child, you have a calling from God. And when you walk in a posture of fearing God, Avoiding self-centeredness, you become a vessel set apart for Christ's service. God will be glorified in his grace in your life. Claim that grace and finish the race. Let's pray. Lord, God bless this dear congregation. I thank you for them. I pray that we will avoid the errors of Abraham and that we will trust you all the way to the finish line. And that we will be your servants till you come again in glory. Oh, God, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. And if you are not choosing to come yet, then give us strength to pursue the race in your grace. In Jesus' name.